0: Morning, y'all. Five and a half years with Scott in Canada. Did teach me a few things. The thing that I didn't get was, um, I've had a number of people who have said to me, why did he bring you down here now? Because it is just hot. Y'all are grumpy and you're waiting for it to cool down and I'm like, whew, I was not built for this, let me tell you. So, hey, we are so glad to be here. My wife Dawn and I have been here all week. We've been having fun with Scott and Tara, who are dear friends. And we've also been spending a bit of time with your staff, whom we've grown to love. And we've just been having a great time with them. It's been fantastic. And so this is the second time we've actually been down here. We're back here in March. And that seemed like a little bit more hospitable Climate at that point. But in any event, we are glad regardless. I come from a place where there are seasons, four of them. And so you get a little bit more variability in your weather than I think you guys get down here. I've been picking that up as we've been going. So yes, I served with Scott for five and a half years in Calgary. We had a wonderful time. And the thing that's been cool is that since he left to come back down here, We've continued our friendship, and we've been involved in ministry together, working in coaching networks, and just having a great time. And so for Dawn and I to be down here with Scott and Tara and all of you is just a wonderful blessing for us. I also want to bring greetings to you from our church, First Alliance Church in Calgary, a sister church, a church that, like you, is absolutely committed to building lives that honor God, all for Jesus. So you're not alone in this. There are other people in other places that share your passion for this, and it's just cool for us to be able to do that together. Today we're gonna think about the church that God uses. And it's actually a big deal. This really matters. And so I want us to get into this, and I want us to kinda set the stage because if you think about it for a minute, the church in North America Is increasingly finding itself out on the edges, isn't it? It's continuing to find itself a little bit more out on the fringe of things. It's got less of a voice. It seems like there's less of an impact. It would seem that here, like in my country, many churches are not having the kind of impact that we would come to expect when we look at the Scriptures and we think about church history. So I looked at a bunch of stats, for kind of religious commitment here in the great state of Texas, and found that it falls into the same trajectory that we see almost everywhere in the Western world. It's waning some. There's a bit of decline. Less people believe in God. Less people read their Bibles and pray. Less people go to church and engage in the activities that you and I would see as consistent with the life of faith. Many churches are plateaued or declining. Now, you're sitting there going, Aren't you just a ray of sunshine, right? But I think it's important for us to understand this because as I describe the current reality, we need to be clear about something. It does not have to be and should not be the experience of the church. This is not what the church is supposed to be. What is typical is often very different than what is supposed to be normal. And we need to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. When we think about churches that God uses... We think about churches that are able to withstand those stifling forces in our culture. Churches that can continue to grow, not only numerically, but in influence as well. They grow in a qualitative way as they invest in people, building lives that honor God. There is life change happening on an ongoing basis as people are drawn to Christ in salvation and continue to grow in Christ in sanctification. They share in the passion to see others join them in this amazing life of faith. These are healthy churches, and healthy things grow. Now, you and I get that. If you are around kids, if you have kids, if you have grandkids, you get the reality that that's true. I have three children, they're all married, I have nine grandchildren, and I have never, one time, had to sit down and have this conversation with them. Kira, that's the three-year-old granddaughter, you need to start growing. No, come on, you need to be taller. You need to start moving more. I never say that to her. (laughs) But you never have to have those conversations. Why? Because growth comes naturally to anything that's healthy. Healthy things grow. And the reality is that that's absolutely true for the church as well. So I want us to think about the church for a moment before we go to our text. Now, the church is described in the scriptures using different images or pictures. In one image, it's referred to as the dwelling place of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We see that in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, where it says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You too, each one of you gathered together, becoming a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Another beautiful image that God uses to describe the church is He refers to us as His bride. What a beautiful picture of love and affection, of intimacy. It's repeated throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, Paul paints a picture of this beautiful bride. And in the Revelation, John speaks multiple times about the bride being gathered to the Lord, her bridegroom. Tremendous imagery. One that I really love that pops up in the New Testament is that we're the body of Christ. This one makes so much sense to me. This idea of this fully functioning, healthy, contributing organism. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 say. See, this is a beautiful image. And it speaks plainly about how we both belong and contribute to this amazing entity, the church. But let's be clear about something. Let's never forget this. Fundamentally, the church is people. It's people. It's all of us, redeemed by God, gathered in community, sharing in our God-given mission to the glory of God. Now, my favorite definition of the church, my personal favorite, is this. The church is the visible expression of the invisible God. The church is the visible expression of the invisible God. In other words, the church should always be about what matters to Jesus. It should always be motivated by his interests and passion. When they see us, they should see Jesus. When we show up, Jesus shows up. One of the primary ways people are to be exposed to Jesus is by coming into contact with the church, the people of God. And that's why Jesus' marching orders to the church are so important. He lays them out for us in the great commandment and the great commission. And living them out is both simple to understand and yet a lifelong journey to pursue. Think about these words in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Many of you know that great commandment. Many of you could quote that great commandment. It's easy for us to understand, but man, it's a, it's, it's a big deal to live that out, isn't it? To really make that our own We go from the commandment to the commission, Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And again, we say, Yes! Amen! We agree. And yet the challenge for us is to live that out. So what we see, fundamentally, our calling is this. We're to love God, we're to love people, and we're to make disciples. That's what we're supposed to be about. The spiritual vitality of every generation depends on these things being accomplished. And this is done through healthy churches. The church that God uses has always prevailed and impacted its culture. It has always been used as an agent of spiritual transformation. It has always been engaged in God's work of drawing people to himself and seeing them drawn into an ever-deepening relationship with their creator, their savior, their Lord, their friend. But additionally, churches that God uses have always set a forward momentum, a trajectory that would continue to propel the transforming power of the gospel into the next generation. It can never be just about us. That can never be. Impacting this generation and passing faith along is a vital and vibrant thing for us to do. We need to give it to the next generation. And it's at the core of what it means to be a church that God uses. Now, it's clear to me that you guys get this. You are a church that has been doing this for 134 years. That's amazing. But even as you sit here this morning, I want to say something to you. Yes, you've got this great 134-year history, this great tradition, all of these things that have taken place. You should recount those, you should celebrate those, but I want to say this as clearly as I can. God is not done with you yet. There is more. There is more to be done. There is more transformation to take place. There are more lives to be touched. There's so much more in front of you. So let's think for a few moments about what a church God uses. What does it look like? What are the descriptors that would set it apart and allow it to thrive regardless of the forces of its host culture? I believe that this kind of church has always had some fundamental and non-negotiable characteristics. And it has always been healthy from a biblical point of view. So as we approach our text today, I think it's important to review what's already been talked about, what's already been covered, to ensure that we get the context. See, prior to this beautiful description of the church that we're going to look at in verses 42 to 47 of Acts 2, we've seen some other things happen. They were given the mandate to engage in what we've just described in Acts 1:8. The early church was told to, to gather and to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they did, waiting in obedience, in prayer, in worship. They lifted up and exalted Christ. They preached the gospel. It's no wonder to me that Paul, so early in his epistle to the Romans, said this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. These people were not ashamed of the gospel. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 4, it says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then later, as Peter's preaching, he says in verses 38 and 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. Friends, who is that? It's you. It's me. That gift given to us, the same as it was given to them. So there's no way for us to write off their experience as being unique and different than ours because we experience the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're the same church. Then we come to the text. Listen as I read it. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What a picture. Isn't that crazy? I read that passage regularly to keep my eye and my heart fixated on what the church is supposed to look like. So, we're going to take a minute and look at that today. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to growing in their faith. And that was a big deal because, if you recall, the church went from 120 people in the upper room to thousands of people just like that. And these people had way more questions than answers. Many of them didn't know much. And so, they were really committed to learning, to growing. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what we see in the historical records of the church is that's not something just for people who are new in their faith, that's something that should actually deepen our faith continually as we move through our journey of walking with Jesus. In the original language, this line is actually stronger than what it appears in the English. Because it has the sense of being continually devoted to. The apostles' teaching. This wasn't something that they just did every now and then. It wasn't something that they did when it was convenient. This was something that they were pursuing passionately all the time. And the goal of this devotion to biblical teaching has to be more than just gathering information. It can't be just about us being able to have a good, intelligent conversation out after the service. Sharing information about what we know about the Bible. No, friends, this pursuit must lead to life change. The goal is actually that we would become more like Jesus. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You'll hear Pastor Scott say sometimes, everything we do is about Jesus and how we can become more like him. I suspect you're going to hear that a lot. That could not be more biblical. Everything should be about Jesus and becoming more like him. It's the pursuit of the follower of Jesus. But it wasn't just this. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Fellowship's an interesting word. In the original, it was koinonia, this idea of a shared life. There was this radical sense of community, of belonging, and it expressed itself in so many ways. Sometime, you should take the moment, it'll take you a few minutes, take your electronic Bible out and search for one another. And... Dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament, you'll see phrases about how believers are supposed to engage with each other, love one another, encourage one another, build each other up. It just goes on and on and on. This is a radical form of fellowship. It goes way more than just having a handshake on a Sunday morning. Expresses itself. These are the ways that fellowship was lived out. This expanded view of koinonia. But there was also this idea of the breaking of bread. And here I believe it's referring to communion. The time when they gathered to remember and celebrate all that Jesus had accomplished for us through his death and burial and resurrection. It's interesting to me that they were not separated that far from when the cross had actually happened. They were fairly close in proximity to when the crucifixion had already occurred. And already they are committed to remembering it, to focusing in on everything that Jesus had done for them, something that we continue to this day. And then there's this notion of prayer. Friends, if there's gonna be a church that God uses, I will guarantee you it will be a praying church. It will be a praying church. It's fundamental, it's at the core. See, prayer is our ongoing conversation with Jesus, speaking and listening in this recurring rhythm that deepens our intimacy with the Lord and then allows us to draw from him all that is required to live life in a way that honors him. It's also, I believe, a posture of dependence. It's a posture of dependence. Howard Hendricks said this about prayer. Prayer is the recognition that our need is not partial but total. I'm not sure we buy that. Now, it's interesting. We do sometimes, when you get into a situation where everything's taking a hard left turn, things are getting mucky, you don't get it, things are out of sorts, what do you do? Pray. Man, you're all in at that point, but then all of a sudden it's roses and sunshine, and what happens? We don't pray so much. Let me say this to you. Your need is no less in the sunshine days than in the stormy days. Because we are absolutely dependent on Jesus for our life. And apart from him, John 15 says we can do nothing. Prayer, fundamental. But the description of this church goes on. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This is a really interesting statement. It's a place I like to stop and think sometimes. Because to me, it speaks to the incredible reality of the inbreaking of God in their midst. There were things taking place that could not be explained in human terms. Life change, healings, miracles. God was on the move, and it rocked Jerusalem. They were experiencing great joy. We see this in the text, but they were also at the same time in awe of God. They were seeing things take place, and their response was, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Because it was clear that what was taking place was not simply manufactured by human effort, that God had showed up and was doing something that defied explanation. What about us? What about our churches? Is this true of us? See, churches that God uses are seeing God work in their midst in ways that defy human explanation. People are in awe of all that God is doing. Is that true of us? It must be. The fingerprints of God must be all over our lives and our gatherings, all over our efforts so it's clear to people that they're not simply seeing good people doing good work, but they're seeing Jesus show up and do something that goes beyond anything that any of us could have imagined. But then <laughs> another miracle happened. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Really? Now stop for a second. See, we read this stuff and we just carry on. Stop and think about that for a second. Thousands of new believers gathered in Jerusalem, and this is how they described them. They were all together and had everything in common. Think about the last time you planned a family vacation. Okay, there would have been what? Three or four of you, maybe ten of you. I don't know how many there were. How easy was it to get to the place of unity on where you were going to go? Not a chance, right? Some want water, some want no water, some want hot, some want the mountains, some want this time, some want that time, and there's all this back and forth going on and, you know, all of that. And then, at the end of the day, how do you solve the problem? Mum decides. Right? That's how it works in most places. This this thing of unity is a big deal. For us to, to read this line is incredible. Thousands of people, and that's how they're being described. I think of Psalm 133 where it says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now listen to this line. For there, there, the Lord bestows his blessing. Even life forevermore. You know, we get preoccupied by this notion of how can we know God's blessing. It says it right here. Live in unity with each other. Work hard at it. Be connected in this rich kind of fellowship that shares in the remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, that prays like crazy, that recognizes our dependence on him and is completely unified. And then, like this just keeps ratcheting up. And then they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. What? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's crazy, right? Here they are in the city of Jerusalem. Thousands of people have come to Christ, many of whom were not actually from Jerusalem. They had come there thinking that they were just coming for the festival. And now all of a sudden they've come to know Jesus and they're staying. Well, they don't have the means for that. So everybody gets together and says, okay, if you've got a need, I'm going to help meet it. And if I need to sell something I've got to get the money to provide my resources to help you, I'm going to do it. Friends, that's the spirit of God at work. Serving each other in such a profound way that they're prepared to part with some of their possessions in order to meet a need. That's powerful. 1 John 3 asks a question about this that I think is really important for us. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in mead, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That's a pretty pointed question, isn't it? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and the truth. Now, some people take this passage out of context and they, they don't, they, Oh, everybody had to sell everything and throw it in a big, pot. that's not what it's saying. Later on in the text, it says they were still meeting in their homes. So people still had stuff, but when they saw a need, they were going to do whatever it took to meet that need. Even if it meant getting rid of something of theirs in order to have resources available to help that other person. And then comes this great summary in the text good. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This is amazing, right? Their shared life of faith. It had this kind of formal sense to it. They were gathering in the temple. It had this informal sense. They were meeting together in homes. It's just crazy everything that God's doing. It's this wonderful sense of the church. And actually... Everyone loves the description so far. Everybody goes, yeah, let's have more of that. Why? Because it's all about us. Right? It describes this cozy, sweet experience. It makes us feel good. But it's interesting. Don't stop reading there. Because the description's not finished yet. It goes on and it says this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, that is staggering, isn't it? That is incredible. That this church that explodes on the scene and rocks Jerusalem as God works in and through it is now seeing people come to Jesus every single day. A profound sense of transformation that's continuing. Now, I think it's interesting for us to think about this, because we think about that first part of it, and we think of the church gathered. We think that's fantastic. Yes, let's be gathered, let's have great fellowship, let's pray together, let's worship, let's do all that stuff. That's fantastic. But these people went beyond that, because the church that was gathered and came together to be strengthened was then scattered and went out into Jerusalem and absolutely changed the city, by sharing the good news with other people. Now, what was it that motivated them? Well, I think you could say safely, weeks ago, they had been dead in their sin. They had been lost as can be. And they had just come to Christ. And having come to Christ, they all knew people, and they knew the circumstances of people, and they wanted them to experience the same thing that they did. So for them, it wasn't about just creating this cozy fellowship. It was about creating a fellowship that would strengthen them so that they could go and have the impact that they were supposed to have in their workplace, in their community, on their sports team, in their campus, wherever it was. And the result of that was that people were coming to Jesus every day. Oh, my goodness. That's stunning. I want to say something to you. This is perhaps a view of the church that you may not have considered. But it's a big deal. The church exists as much for those who do not attend it as those who do. The church exists as much for those who do not attend it as for those who do. Because it's the people who do attempt, that have been given the deposit of the gospel, that they can then take it by the power of the Spirit and communicate it with people who need to hear the good news and be invited in. Isn't that the way it works? Sometimes what I do, uh, we talk about this, my wife Dawn and I. We sit down and we try and just clear our heads for a bit, and we think about what life would be like for us if we had never met Jesus. That's a very sobering exercise. What would my life be like? What would your life be like if you had never met Jesus? Friends, you think on that and you recognize that so many of the people around you, that is their current reality. And God has given us the good news that can transform all of that. The life of the church, their devotion to biblical teaching and growth, their love for each other, their worship, expressing itself in praise, the sacraments and prayer, the visible manifestations of God's presence and power in their lives and midst, their determination to share the good news that has revolutionized their lives, led, people to, led to people coming to Jesus every day. Friends, that may not be typical, but that's normal for a church that God is using. There is life change happening all the time. Arnold Downey, who was the district superintendent in our district of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, about 115 churches, he said to me one time something that just it caught me. It was just like, what? He said this. He said, there are people in every community today that if they received a clear, compelling invitation to accept Christ as their Savior and Lord, they'd say yes. And he said that, and I went, whoa, 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 what? But then I thought about it. And I went, he is absolutely right. And in the years that have passed since he said that, I've seen that over and over and over and over again. No, so let's personalize that. Could it be, could it be that there are people in Wimberley today, people on your campus today, people in your workplace today, that if they received a clear, compelling invitation to accept Christ as their Savior and Lord, they'd say yes? I believe that's true. I believe that's true. This is what a church that God uses looks like. And much of what is described here fits nicely, like really nicely, with the things that you focus on and are living out here at First Baptist Wimberley. Because you focus in on these life commitments. And if you're paying attention to the text, you see these life commitments embedded in this text everywhere. This idea of honor or worship, it's there. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, praising God with glad and sincere hearts, breaking the bread of communion, praying together. This idea of connect, having fellowship. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This idea of growing, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Service, giving to anyone who had need, so radical that they would sell their things in order to make sure that needs were met. That service in a way that we don't often see it. And this idea of sharing, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, this idea of honor, connect, grow, serve, and share, they are the hallmarks of what it means to be in a church and be a church that God uses. It's the transformation of individuals that's followed by the transformation of a gathered community. Both are miraculous, but this led to the transformation of a city and ultimately the world. And you and I are the beneficiaries of this as we sit here today, reflecting on what it means to be a church that God uses. What happens, friends, if that church in Jerusalem had just maintained a gathered sense rather than a scattered sense? they just said, it's us four and no more. This is just for us. We're cozy. We're happy. That's it. What happens? Every single one of us is lost. That's what happens. Every single one of us is lost. Because the reality is, That we are intended to be that church just like they were. And as the Jerusalem church saw that they were not just to be gathered but scattered, the next church did, and the next church did, and the next church did, and the next church did. And one of those churches reached you, and one of those churches reached me. And now, (laughs) now it's our turn. It's our turn to be that church. Ensuring that the same results happen in our generation and beyond. Transformation now and the propelling of the gospel into the next generation. Depositing a legacy of faith and spiritual health in the generations that will follow us. And the reality is that every one of these things is active. Every single one of these things is active. It's not about agreeing with something, giving intellectual assent to something. It's certainly not just saying amen to something. This was about them living these things out. They weren't talking about connection. They were connected. And the same was true for each of these life commitments. And it must be true for us. We can't just say amen to these things and walk away. We need to actually be building our lives to honor God. We need to be honoring Him with our worship. Connected, growing, serving, sharing. And we must have a vibrant spiritual dynamic in our walk and our witness that cannot be explained away in human terms. We must be trusting the Holy Spirit to work in us so that we will bear much fruit. We we must be exercising the gifts that he pours into our lives. We must be living with the spiritual power that he manifests in and through us. We must be committed to staying in step with the spirit so that as individuals and as a community of faith, he can use us any way he wants. As I was preparing this talk, I was thinking about, you know, the the cool thing about the Holy Spirit is he takes a talk and he just customizes it. (laughs) Everybody gets what they need. That's not me. That's Jesus. But I wonder what he's saying to you today. Is there a life commitment that he's putting his finger on and saying, you know, you need to engage in this. You need to engage more fully in this. Is there a way for you to take a step that would have you living a more vibrant and dynamic walk of faith with Jesus? Friend, that would not be just good for you. That would be good for y'all, right? Isn't that true? Because as one part begins to thrive and flourish, what does it do? It enhances the experience of the entire body. This is a big deal. So I would just ask you right now, in the quietness of this moment, to just say, Spirit of God, what are you saying to me today? What is it that you want to do in my life that would enable me to live a life that honors you more fully and that would help us become in a more intense and more effective way that church that God uses. Maybe for you, it's that idea of just living in step with the Spirit. Maybe it's been a long time since you got up in the morning and said, Spirit of living God, fall afresh on me today. Use me today. I want to be listening. I want to be in step. And then going through your day sensitive to what the Spirit of God would have you engaged in, the conversations He would have you have, the opportunities He would see you embrace. There's all kinds of things that we could be doing, but I want, my prayer is that you would leave here this morning with something specific that God is saying to you that you can begin to deepen in your walk with him. Now, you may be here this morning, you may be watching online, and you're going, man, I've heard this great depiction of what life is supposed to be like. Uh, I don't get any of that. I'm I'm not even a believer. I've never accepted Jesus. Well, friend, that's where it all starts for all of us. Every single one of us was at that point, at one point in our lives. And today, all of that can change for you. Because all you have to do as an individual is to recognize that God wants to give you life in place of the deadness that you are currently living in. And just say to Him, just say to Him, Jesus, I've been going my own way, I've been doing my own thing. The Bible calls that sin. Oh, forgive me for that. Cleanse me. I want to turn from going my own way and I want to follow you. So I invite you into my my life as Savior. I surrender my heart to you as Lord. Oh, Jesus, thank you that even now I'm experiencing that transformation that we've been talking about all morning. I want us to bow our heads. And if that's you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer so that you can accept Jesus right now. And then the worship team is going to lead us as we continue to reflect on this, and then we'll conclude our service. Jesus, I have been living my life on my own terms. I've been going my own way. I've been doing my own thing, and it is not working. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I want to turn from following my own way, and I want to follow you. I invite you into my life as savior. I surrender my life to you as Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that all things in this moment are made new and I become part of that beautiful body, that fellowship, that church. Oh, Father, go with me now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.